We do believe that ESG investing in the public markets is critical to any portfolio because it's usually the largest portion of anyone's portfolio. I believe measuring and reporting should inspire change in behavior and aha. Knowing what you own and then educating yourself around that and what's out there is power in a good sense. Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, we have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Jennifer Kenning. Jennifer is the co-founder and CEO of Align Impact, an independent fiduciary and impact specialist that works with clients to help them integrate impact strategies and investments into their broader wealth management strategy. Jen was previously a partner and board member at Aspirant, a wealth management firm, before leaving to start Align. Welcome, Jen. So great to have you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So let's dive in. You left an established career that in the wealth management industry to do something different. And I know you see yourself as an entrepreneur, but would love to unpack what that transition looked like and what inspired you to make a change in your career from Experient to what you're doing today. Absolutely. I spent the first 13 years of my career kind of doing the traditional routes of climbing the corporate ladder. And what no one seemed to recognize is that while I was climbing the corporate ladder, I was also severely depressed. And my way of coping with mental illness and depression was working with people on Skid Row and working with the homeless population in Los Angeles. And that's really where I got my footing into this kind of arena. From there, I went to East Africa and I saw 12 social enterprises in 2013, and I just didn't come back the same person. And I recognized at that point that I could either keep doing what I was doing and do very little on the periphery, or I could actually help families, foundations, institutions really define what they cared about and ultimately move capital in the direction that would solve global problems. I've always really been inspired by how you've brought your own experiences into the authenticity of what you're doing today at Align. But taking a step back, some of our listeners might need a refresher around impact investing, which is essentially how you're helping your clients align their values and their money. Can you unpack that for us? Absolutely. So I think of impact investing as a very personal journey. I think everyone needs to define it for themselves and what it means to them. What is their why? And from there, you're really looking to do a multiple of things. One is you're looking for a financial return. That could be 0%. 
or that could be, you know, a grant in some cases, right, that has a measurement tied to it. You're also looking to measure the impact back to society, both from a social and or environmental perspective. And then lastly, you're really looking to have additionality. How do these dollars invested impact the broader ecosystem, the financial services industry, and ultimately stakeholder capitalism. Think of these things really in three fronts. One is financial returns. Two is measurement of the outputs and outcomes. And three is what is your why and how is it having additional impact back to society? Is it possible you can give us an example of something that you've worked on recently? Absolutely. If you think about where we are in this country around social and racial injustice, and you think about where capital flows and making this system more equal, one could argue that you don't get enough capital to small and medium-sized enterprises in the United States that are run by women or people of color. And that ultimately, if they do get those forms of capital, they're at less favorable rates or terms, and they tend to be already at a disadvantage. So one thing that we've done recently is helped educate clients on the benefits of a community development finance institution and how they can loan their money to those institutions for a determined rate of return in a defined period of time. And then those institutions deploy capital in their communities, the communities they know, the borrowers that are in their communities, and ultimately the small businesses that drive our economy. So one of the things that that I think about when I think about directing capital into places, is the return when that's done typically lower or is it about the same as capital investments in, let's just say, the more traditional businesses? And the reason I ask that is because you'd think it's sort of like a, a foregone conclusion that that would have to be the case, right? Like capital flows efficiently. Why doesn't it flow efficiently in there? So is it is it that the returns are lower or is it a myth that returns are lower when you're investing in a community of people who can't get capital from somewhere else? And I'm really glad that you asked that question because it's it's a myth, right? It's a myth. There's a lot of unconscious biases in that question in itself. And what I would say is there's a spectrum of capital or returns that you get for different types of capital. And what we need to do is we need to look at what is the appropriate market rate return for the level of risk I'm taking as an investor that I should be seeking for loaning or investing my capital in this entrepreneurial endeavor fund or public market option. And so when you think about concessionary returns, usually what we're saying is that they're you're taking additional risk for that type of return and you just need to quantify that risk. But oftentimes you're getting actually market rate returns. You just need to quantify it up front. Is it just that the banks, like the local banks don't loan into those areas or is it too early in the, you know, in the startup phase where the banks don't get involved, where those community development sort of groups get started? It's a little bit of both. One is they tend to loan at later stages of a company. And so they're not going to loan at that early stage or they're not going to, they're focused on the PPP of the broader market. If we use our current environment, the community development finance institutions were established in those communities for a reason, right? Their, Their intention is to build those communities and be a strong partner for those communities. And so they have, think of it as an additional intention in terms of how to deploy their capital beyond a traditional bank. And you mentioned an educational component to, you know, working with your clients when they want to learn more about a specific area. That makes me think that your model is different than traditional financial advisors. Can you talk a little bit more about how you're unique? 
We're unique in a couple ways. One is most traditional advisors or institutions are trying to scale to meet a lot of client objectives. We're actually trying to be a custom solution for families that want to deploy a significant amount of wealth to solving these problems. So we're not really trying to put anyone in a box. We're really trying to help them figure out what their playground looks like and then how best to execute on their initiative with the assets and the different levers that they have. I fundamentally believe that a lot of that is education. I think people want to be quick to allocate a type or form of capital or even an amount, and then they want to see how that plays out over time. When in reality, it's got to be a constant learning journey and you've got to really dig into what is the problem, what are the potential solutions, and what are all of the different levers that I have at my disposal in order to attack that problem and ultimately drive to a solution. So one of the other myths or misconceptions about impact investing, as you were saying, it's not that, you know, the returns don't have to be lower. And I've, I've certainly found that with my own investing as well. But basically, once somebody starts on this journey and they start going down into learning education mode, you would think that they would discover that, oh, hey, look, I'm getting the same returns. So do you find that to be true that a high percentage of clients do discover that? Or is there a drop off where some percentage after two, three, five years look back and say, yeah, you know, I really just need to make my maximum return. I I can't afford to go down this impact investing route. I think clients or investors tend to add more capital to the pool as they're in it longer because they have the context in which to do so from. I believe that everyone should be a long-term investor. You should be looking to build partnerships, portfolios in your investment portfolio to be at least a 10-year play. Ed, so when you think about short-term results, even two to three-year results, we need to look out farther than that. I mean, I think what people start to see is you're going to get outputs in that two to three to four-year period which is, you know, number of jobs created, number of kids educated, number of people lifted out of poverty. But to really get to outcomes, which I believe the outputs and the outcomes combine is what inspires people to, to do something different. It's going to take longer than a five-year period. We like to say it's going to take at least five to 10 years to really be able to pinpoint back to the outcome of those outputs. While we're on the topic of just kind of baseline of investing, there is a lot out there when it comes to the broad category of impact investing and how maybe you believe or some people believe and some people don't believe that environmental, social and governance investing and screening out for those factors sits underneath that umbrella. But can you just maybe distinguish, because I think what you're talking about is probably a more direct investment where you can really see that value. Whereas there is a big part of the market that only has access to different funds or ESG screens. Can you talk about how you view these two buckets? So ESG is a way of screening any public or private company. We're looking at them on the merits of environmental, social, and governance metrics. We actually look at them as we believe they're risk mitigators. So we actually believe you're looking forward and you're actually saying, where can we actually look at companies that may have less risk in the future because they're factoring in these factors? We do believe that ESG investing in the public markets is critical to any portfolio because it's usually the largest portion of anyone's portfolio. And we believe that if you're going to take a divestment or just a neutral screen approach where you're just screening out the things that go against your values or you're mitigating for risk, that you should also engage with corporates. 
You should also engage with companies. I think the way we're going to transform from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism is really by doing a combination of all of them. We're going to need to screen for those metrics. We're going to need to engage with leadership and the board of companies to drive change in a different direction. And then lastly, we need to invest in private companies at all stages of the company's evolution so that those can be our future public companies and they can actually be the future economy a decade from now. So we've all heard the phrase, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> and, you know, definitely that's what we're talking about today, right? Which is where people put their money, not what they're saying, but what they're actually doing with their money. And I think that is the most important. But when we talk about the mouth or the examples, one of the things that sort of constant theme with me is sort of the signals that wealthy people send to the rest of the world. So really, you know, you have to think about the carbon footprint of wealth. Large homes that have huge lawns that take lots of water and lawnmowers, you know, to cut them and private jets and SUVs, Escalades and, you know, Rolls <laughs> Royces and everything that, you know, we're not talking about necessarily driving a Prius. Well, a few people in LA do that. What do you think the role is for a well? I, I, I suspect you don't get into this with them, but I'm curious if you do, you know, what about the lifestyle of the rich? Do they, do these wealthy people think about that or are they just sort of like, well, I'm going to live my lifestyle and then I'm going to let my money do, do the good work for me. We absolutely do get into this, Ed. I mean, it's a really great question. It goes back to that education piece. I don't think most people are aware of the electricity use, the water use, um, the carbon footprint of the private jet, right? So partly it is having them recognize and understand that and then having them see that you're you're basically offsetting all the good work you're doing on your philanthropic side or your investment side if your consumption and behavioral decisions kind of negate it. And once you give them the data, then they can make different choices. And so then as part of the education, and I, and I don't mean this flippantly, although it might sound that way, as part of the education, like helping them understand how to have fun without, you know, jetting around, because jetting around is really fun. <laughs> Really? Um, I think so. I think first, first, it's have them see that there are other options. And actually, we're getting a good test of this during this pandemic, right? Because mm -hmm. they can't really jet around to a lot of places. So for really the first time, they're starting to say, oh, my wealth doesn't get me what it used to get me because I can't just take my private jet and go anywhere in the world that I want to go. There's an impact today with that. And so partly it's having them cut back, just like if you're somebody who's a meat eater and you're going to start to cut back on eating meat even one day a week, or you're going to choose an impossible burger over a regular burger every now and then, just being aware of it, I think also starts to change behavior. Jen personally was one of the first people I know who traveled with her own water bottle. I did. So it's a funny story. And Ed, I do drive a Prius. Oh. Um, <laughs> don't hold that against me. But no, I, I, I gave up using plastic water bottles. New Year's resolution in 2014, I said I was going to go a whole year without ever using a plastic water bottle. And then it stuck with me. And I had someone along my journey over the last decade that said something really powerful to me is that we tend to leave excess water in various places. And she was like, imagine all the people that don't have the water that you're building solutions for 
like stop you leaving the excess water on a restaurant table or in your water bottle when you're going to the airport, put it on the plants. Just being conscious of that, I think, is part of our evolution as humanity, right? Of how are we going to sustain and live on this planet with 8 billion or 9 billion people without having a further expense on the planet? Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I do think that there's, there's a flip in the conversation, Ed, around knowing that conserving is good for the planet will become more of a kind of valued conversation. I definitely, you know, go to, go to specific places when I can and I, and I'm offered a bottle of water and I'm just say, no, I don't, I don't use plastic as a, certainly inspired by you, Jen. And you'd be surprised there are a number of people if it, there are others around say, oh, me too. Yeah, I'm doing that too. So I think that there, the, the education will, will also create some positive trends. But I do want to pivot to integrating values. It can be hard to clearly articulate what matters to oneself. And, you know, I personally know through just kind of going through a process of defining my values that my values are varied and I can define them by the sustainable development goals or I can define them by other means, but it's not an easy process. And I know, Jen, that's part of your job at Align. And I would love for you to walk us through what that process looks like with your clients. Yeah, I think it's an intellectual discovery that is constantly evolving, right? It starts with, I ask, what's the one thing you want to move the needle on in the world and why? And usually the first response is, I can only have one. (laughs) And I say, you have a finite amount of resources and a finite amount of time. That one area usually comes from something they've experienced gone through in their life or lived through with their family or is deeply personal to them. And what that does is it allows us to go on a journey that they're comfortable discussing that one area. And then we go into nine different issue areas. The reason we have people focus on nine different areas is because a lot of the areas actually are intertwined and interconnected as we're seeing in today's environment. We also believe that if you're an environmentalist, you're also a socialist. And if you're a socialist, you're an environmentalist because they are so interdependent. And we want to build bridges for people on how to have their values actually connect to each other rather than they need to be in their own kind of lane, for lack of better words. So it's a, it's a constant journey and I allow them the space to really think through them and give them concrete examples of how they play out in different forms, whether it's to Ed's consumption question, to investing, to philanthropic, to, you know, how did we get where we are today, right? To history. Yeah, absolutely. And intersectionalism is something that has really come to light during the COVID pandemic. Like these different issues are connected. Exactly. Jen, do you want to shed more light on on some areas where you're seeing? I don't have a fancy vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) Sure you don't. Well, I also want to mention, because we've mentioned education a lot for the viewer, for the listeners, education is power. Knowing what you own and then educating yourself around that and what's out there is power in a good sense. When I talk about interdependent or interconnected, if you think about our supply chains or you think about the disruption in China to Europe and then coming to the U.S., whether it's the pandemic or just our supply chains in general, we are all interconnected, right? We can't separate what's going on in another part of the world 
to what's going on in the United States. Because of technology, we also have a lot more transparency than we've ever had in prior decades. And so we're connected from a communications, from seeing it, experiencing it. We had a heads up. We got to see what was coming in some sense. And then lastly, what each of us do matters to somebody else, right? We can't just live in our own bubble, right? What somebody does inside of a stay-at-home order impacts millions, if not really billions of people. And so we can no longer look at these things as segmented because they're so interconnected. We live in a global economy that depends on each other. Yeah. And, and what's come to light are you know issues around racism and climate change and how they're intersecting or climate change and poverty. And there's a great TED talk that I love by, she's actually a political strategist, Heather McGee. And she's, I think, an economist as well called racism has a cost for everyone that walks through intersectionalism as well. But thank you for for touching on that for all of us. You know, something that I think has really come to the forefront around impact investing is the stakeholder model. And you mentioned that earlier. And I know that you have an incredible company culture and that you've been a B corporation for many years. Can you talk about how your values and what you uphold at Align has extended beyond just your clients' investments? Yeah, when we were building Align, we wanted to really live out not only our core values and not just have them live on a piece of paper, but have them be integrated into everything we do. I also believe that your biggest asset as a company is your people, right? And how do you culture cultivate a culture that empowers people to bring their intellectual honesty different opinions to really drive a different conversation. That's really what we tried to create at Align, not only for the internal employees and our external stakeholders, but also for our clients, right? We're not just looking at the investments. We're looking at how do we do business? What does our business practices and our investments, what's the impact on the planet? How do we generate profits? How do we drive down costs in the financing industry so that more people get access to capital and we actually have more stakeholders, right? How do we create win-win-win? When I say that, I mean a win for the beneficiary, a win for the person you're investing in or the entrepreneur or the company, and a win for the investor. Think about that. If we had a win-win-win model, it would look radically different today. So let me just take this quickly in a direction of, let's say I'm an entrepreneur. I just sold my little business. I made a million bucks and you know, I, I'm looking to, to get started. Like what are some of the easiest, is there a book? Is there a, you know, is there a place you would direct that person to, to go to get some good information about these topics that we're talking about today to start their journey? Well, in December, we'll be able to go get Eva's book, which will, is a good guide. There's also lots of communities. There's communities for next generation. There's communities for family offices. There's community of impact investors such as Tonic. There's communities across the globe. There's also lots of free information out there. One, a lot, all public companies have plenty of free information to really dig into their practices. Maybe you don't want to spend the time there, but you could also go to Impact Assets is another great organization that has different impact briefs. Uh, they're like uh, they're like mini white papers. So they, you don't have to read a whole book. You could pick the thing that you're interested in and you could dive in from there. I think the best place to start is start with what you know and you enjoy and you get excited about. If it's your consumption decision, start there. Start looking at the labels 
labels in the grocery store and then exploring that. And what does that, what do those labels actually mean? If you enjoy giving money away or sitting on boards, start with the nonprofits that you're already engaged with and see where they're taking their practices. If you love investing and playing that game, look to see kind of what are the companies of the future and how can I invest in those companies and have them thrive? Thank you for the book plug. (laughs) You are both people that I have asked to read the book in advance. Uh, just so you know. I was just going to say it's a good place for people starting and people that have actually been in this space a long time. Um, and I think that's unique. Is it still called the book? The book, <laughs> yes, it's called the book. And and and, and drawing on that thread, actually, another resource just for those yet. who are listening, we do have something called The Guide on the Conscious Investor Magazine where it's a beginner's guide. And, and you're right, Jen, there are a lot of free resources. There's even- Oh, yeah, a, that's what I was- t- yeah, that's good too. Like, is that just in? The, we can put that in the show notes. Yes, we can put it in the show notes. There, there are a few reports that kind of walk you through A to Z strategy for impact investing. But you know, Jen, you you really put it down to three things, and I loved it uh, earlier in our conversation. Screen, engage, and then invest in private companies. And I think that you know that. Those are three areas to really think deeply if you are thinking about it from the investment perspective and how to be catalytic. And speaking of being catalytic, have you measured the impact that the investments you have advised on have had on beneficiaries as a firm? I'm just curious if you've looked at that big picture. Must be a lot. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Great question. So we measure things at the fund level. We measure engagement, kind of how much are we changing corporate behavior at the public company level. And then we help each client determine what they want to measure. So we then customize the measurement for those clients and really have them be engaged with what we're measuring rather than just measuring for the sake of measuring. I believe measuring and reporting should inspire change in behavior or an aha. If you measure something, it should spark a conversation of why am I not doing more of this or why am I, why do I keep doing this if it's not working? We just actually hired um, someone who's going to be solely focused on data and data science to really be able to look at it at a more macro level and a 30,000 foot level. Because we've invested in so many companies directly, as well as funds, as well as public companies, we feel that we're actually sitting on a lot of data that we actually could do something with that would inspire people to dive in even further. I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. (laughs) Definitely. So let's pivot to our rapid fire question. Kicking it off, Jen, what book is on your nightstand right now? The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John C. Maxwell, along with three other books by him that are more daily. What's your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or (laughs) caffeine-free? Coffee for sure. With oat milk, if I have a choice. Name something that's giving you hope right now. I'm really inspired by the impact investors that continue to move capital in a really tough environment and are standing by their values and looking at them from a civic perspective, a social and racial perspective, as well as the investment perspective. Yeah. Civics is definitely a tool in the box. That's come to the forefront for sure this year. What is one trend you are watching in your industry? Ooh, we're watching a lot of trends. I would say right now is the future of systems. Most of the systems are not working. Education, healthcare, food, economic development. How do those systems come together? I would say I'm looking at the systems and where do the systems need to be in the next 10 years? And then we got to go backwards from there. Since you said you're watching a number of trends, and that was a fascinating response, can you give us the 
Number two. I think this is how we're all going to invest a decade from now and that this isn't going away and that we stakeholder capitalism, you're going to start to hear even more and more about it. And I just think this is the trend of the future. And the more information and data we can provide to investors and philanthropists and consumers, the more we'll have people buy into this model. That's great. I'm going to throw a curveball, which is why do you think investors are so scared to know what they own? Yeah, I think it's one is I don't know that they are scared per se. I think they're more don't really know where to start to actually unpack that because they're in so many different vehicles and so many different mutual funds and different asset classes. And I think sometimes they're not sure where to start. If we talk about fear is maybe that the what they're invested in doesn't actually align with what they're committed to and how they hold themselves out in the public arena and that they may have to actually, you know, do some serious soul searching and overall of their portfolio, which could have some tax ramifications and ultimately drive them in a different direction. I also think one last thing is they're just scared to change the scoreboard. Our traditional scoreboard is what's the return been and how does that perform against the benchmark? Let's change the scoreboard. Is there a fund out there, like a mutual fund where, you know, it's like S&P 500, but then you can just click the buttons for the ones that you don't want? There are screening tools, Ed, that you can start to say the things you don't want to own, and then it will basically eliminate two funds that meet your objectives. I guess that would be too complicated for the fund owners, but that would be an interesting fund, which would be one that's like, yeah, run a super low cost fund, but then just don't make me go pick a different fund, you know, because then I'm just sort of chasing this, I'm chasing my tail. It's more interesting to just be able to say like, oh, this company I don't want to own, but I do want to just own that you know, an S&P 500 minus this one firm. There are some strategies or mutual funds or ETFs that ultimately do what you're saying, but you would have to do some work to get to that investment vehicle. Okay. Well, this can get confusing as I just demonstrated yeah. to everyone. <laughs> so you probably are dealing with a lot of issues in your discussions with clients, big equations of, you know, this versus that and return versus stakeholder and purpose. When you're all stressed and tense from those complex thoughts and thinking processes, um, what's your favorite way to unwind? I'm torn between meditation and reading. I really unwind and get a lot of value out of reading. And I read all different types of books, fiction, nonfiction. I'm an avid reader. I usually read five books at a time. So that's usually my way of unwinding. Do you believe in meditating with your eyes open sometimes? If I'm doing a walking meditation, I usually have my eyes open. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Took me a while to get going on the eyes open meditation. Yeah, I've done it before, but I prefer to I prefer to close the my closed eyes. The closed eyes is like I don't yeah, it's a little bit interesting because you're supposed to like bring that meditative state into the rest of your life and you can't do that if you don't do it with your eyes open. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. You know, like good the, training. the ability to sort of stand back and observe. It's that's part of the training. It's one of the reasons I actually, before COVID, went to practice meditation in person because you'd have to interact with all the distractions right. and all the noises from other people and the noises outside, which is truly like mastering your meditation practices, drowning out all the externals that you can't control, which is essentially how we live. Because I know you love podcasts and <laughs> I know that you study specific news sources. Do you have 
one or two favorite resources for staying up to date on current events and especially in impact investing? Well, I think Impact Alpha does a great job daily. And then the recap at the end of the week, both in written form and the podcast. I think you guys do a great job of showcasing different entrepreneurs and different leadership styles that are real and are like really ingrained in the system rather than surface. I love Leadership Next, Leadership Next um, by Fortune, because I feel like it showcases CEOs of public companies that are doing things radically different. And it really gets into the personal nature of how they make decisions. So those are the three kind of podcasts that come to mind, as well as Impact Alpha News Brief Daily. I also love Fortune has lots of different periodicals. There's one for women, the Broad Street. There's one around race. There's one around Alan Murray, CEO. So it's really CEO focused. So I like to read things that I'm going to get a different flavor. I read six to seven periodicals every morning. They give me something different, but they all pertain to what we're doing and kind of where the economy and the world is going. Somewhat to wrap up, uh, I would love to learn more about your vision. You and it would be great, you know, if maybe you could give us some kind of broad strokes on how many clients you have and and the high level stats and where they are now and where you would like to go with what you're creating. Yeah, we have over 50 families, individuals, foundations, institutions, and they've deployed over a billion dollars over the last five to six years across all asset classes. You know, it's not so much about the number. It's really for us about the intentionality. I really want people to use all the different levers they have to close certain financing gaps, to fund things with the right types of capital, to change behavior, to educate the next generation. And so we're really looking to work with change makers and people that have significant means of wealth and even people that are coming into their own wealth, whether it's Ed sold his company for a million dollars and he's now starting his own investment journey to people that are allocators of capital or are advising people with capital, right? Is to see the opportunities and to start aligning those opportunities with people's values and what they care about. And ultimately, Eva, I really hope that it doesn't take us more than 200 years to close the gender divide and the, now the racial divide we have, not only in this country, but across the globe. And the only way we can do that is if we do so in a manner that uses all different types of capital and resources to move in that direction. Otherwise, you know, as the World Economic Forum says, it's going to take more than 200 years to close that gap. I and mean, that's many generations from now. And I'm really hopeful that your children and their children actually see a different world. That works for 8 billion people and on the way to nine and not at the expense of the planet. And that this next generation has a real opportunity to really drive in a different direction than maybe we've done in the past generations. Not that they're wrong. They just had a different scoreboard, as I mentioned earlier. Thank you so much for being a part of a much bigger vision. I mean, it just, it really inspires me to see how the work that you're doing with 50 families translates to a vision of how the planet can thrive. It's really great to hear from you and, and help tell that story today on this podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I'll leave your listeners with one thing. We are all impact investors. Every investment we make or every decision has an impact yeah. um, and that we all can be part of the solution. Yeah. I like to say no investment is neutral, including your, <laughs> including your, your consumer choices as well. Thanks, Jen. Thanks so much. Thanks. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. 
There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.